Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Scripture reading this morning is again going to be Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, as we begin our study of this letter, which calls our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us to fix our eyes on Him, that we might be able to run with endurance the race that has been marked out for us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1001. This is the very Word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His word here this morning. Fathers, we come before you this morning, we come seeking, we come asking, we come entreating you to pour out your grace on us through your word this morning, Father. Give us ears to hear your voice, give us hearts to receive your word with love, and by your truth sanctify us, that we might be fully equipped for every good work which you have prepared for us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, our focus was on the first verse and a half of this opening paragraph, where we learn that that God in these last days has spoken through His Son. This morning, we want to focus on this profound description of the Son which we have in the the remainder of the paragraph, a a description which, which gives us six weighty statements concerning the Son, six dense statements that that come in, in rapid succession. Notice what the author tells us. The author tells us that the Son is the appointed heir of all things, that He is the creator of the world, that He is the radiance of the glory of God, that He is the exact imprint of God's nature, that He is the powerful sustainer of the universe, and that He is the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the Son. This is the Son upon whom we are called to to fix our eyes. And and I want us to to look at these six statements this morning that we might see Jesus in His glory. But we're not going to be taking them one at a time, but rather two at a time, because that's really the way that the author gives them to us. If you have the sermon outline, you'll, you'll see that I've tried to give you a picture of the, sort of the literary structure that we have in these six statements. It's a, it's a structure that uh, commentators like to call a, a chiasm, because chi is the, the Greek letter that looks like an X. And what we have here looks something like that, as you have the, the first and the last statement corresponding, and then the, the second statement with the second to last statement, and, and so on. We, we have three pairs, three couplets, three 
uh, uh, joined statements that together give us a picture of the glory of Christ. And so we want to take them two at a time, but we want to see Jesus as he is set before us in these verses. So first, Jesus is the heir of all things and the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Think about what it means to say that Jesus is the heir. To say that he is the heir means that he is the one to whom the universe will be given. He is the one who will rule the the cosmos as the king of kings and the lord of lords. As the author says in chapter 2, we do not yet see all things in subjection to him. Just look around. Just watch the news. We, we know from, from daily experience that God's will is not yet done on earth as it is in heaven. We, we know that not all things are, are in subjection to Him at this moment. But the day is coming. He is the heir. And one day, even as we will sing at the end of the service, His kingdom shall stretch from shore to shore. He shall reign over all of creation. That same basic idea is communicated in the the last phrase, the, the parallel phrase. To sit at the right hand of the majesty on high is to be God's instrument of sovereign rule. Think of Joseph in Egypt. You remember the story, he was sold as a slave, but through God's providence, he he rose to a position of of prominence. He became Pharaoh's right-hand man. And as the one who sat at Pharaoh's right hand, he was Pharaoh's instrument. He was the one through whom Pharaoh ruled his lands. And that picture is, is but a small picture of Jesus ruled The Father rules through Him. He is the one who sits at His Father's right hand, ruling all of creation. But when we put it that way, when we we speak of Jesus being the heir and the, the ruler of all creation, we wonder how the author can say that He was appointed to such a role. We can can wonder how he can say that that, that Jesus took his his position of power and and authority at a a particular moment in in history, only after making purification for sins. Putting it this way seems to, to make Jesus inferior to the Father. If Jesus is fully and eternally God, and he is, how could he become the heir? Or how could he assume the throne. Wasn't creation his from the beginning? Wasn't he always the ruler? It's a fair question. It's a good question. It's a good question because we know that that people throughout church history have actually used this verse and and other similar verses to, to argue that Jesus is not eternally God. And so how do we respond? How how do we respond to to such arguments? How are we to understand Jesus being appointed the heir or or being given the throne only after his death and resurrection? 
believe that we can begin to unravel this mystery when we understand that the author is not talking about Jesus in his divinity. Jesus is not the heir and the ruler here as God, but as Redeemer. Now again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Jesus is God. We will see that clearly in the the next couplet. But he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the heir of all things as our Redeemer. And we see this clearly in the, the second phrase. Notice what the author says. It was after making purification for sins that he sat down. Now, this idea of, of Jesus sitting down is often used to, to suggest that, that Jesus' work of, of purification was a perfect and complete work. And certainly that is true. It's, it's implied in, in this picture. The Old Testament priests did not sit down because their work was never complete. Every day new sacrifices had to be offered. Every day new sacrifices had to be made on behalf of their own sins and the sins of the people. But Jesus' sacrifice, His sacrifice was a perfect and complete sacrifice, once for all, never to be repeated. And so when the sacrifice was made, He sat down. And that is true. And that is glorious. It is is the hope upon which we rest this morning that the sacrifice that is made for our sins is a perfect and complete sacrifice that nothing need to be added to it so that Peter can say in his letter that salvation is ready to be revealed. It is bought and paid for with the precious blood of, of Jesus Christ. There's more going on here than just the perfection of of Jesus' sacrifice. In fact, I think the main point, the, the point that the author is making, is that it was Jesus' perfect work of purification that was necessary in order for him to become the heir and Lord of creation. But why? If Jesus is eternally God, if he is the creator, as we'll see in the next couple. Why why did he have to do this work of purification in order to become the heir? I believe that Jesus' work of purification was, was necessary because ruling creation is the role for which we were created. Ruling creation is the role that was originally given to mankind. Mankind was created to exercise dominion as as God's instrument of rule over all of creation. We we see this clearly in the opening chapters of, of Genesis. God created man in his own image and he charged him at the very beginning to take dominion, to to exercise God's sovereign rule, to to serve as his vice regents over all of creation. This was the role that was given to us, to give to, to mankind. But of course, it's the role that we lost when our first parents rebelled. Not only did sin disqualify us because of its guilt, but it also rendered us incapable because of its power. No longer were we fit to to rule creation. No longer were we able to rule creation to the glory of our King. And therefore, the eternal Son 
had to become man so that he could deal with our sin problem, so that he could deal with both its guilt and its power, so that he could restore us to the place for which we were created, so that he could restore us and make us yet again heirs and rulers of creation. Thus, it is as man that Jesus was appointed heir and ruler of creation. He was always and eternally God. But he became the the ruler of creation. He, He assumed the role for which man was created as our redeemer, as the second Adam, as the one who not only put right what the first Adam put wrong, but the one who accomplished what the first Adam had left undone. And think about what that means. Think about what that meant for for the Hebrews to whom this letter was written. Think about what that means for us today. He is calling us to see in Christ the only hope we have of being the people we were created to be. You see, the hope of Christianity is not simply that we might escape the punishment of our sins. Thank God it is that. Thank God in Christ we we don't have to bear the guilt of our sins. Thank God in Christ that that they will never be counted against us, that we will not be treated as our sins deserve. But I want you to hear this morning that the hope of the gospel is so much more than immunity from the punishment of our sins. It It is so much more than that our sins would be forgiven. Our sins are forgiven for a purpose. Our sins are forgiven that we might be restored to the life for which we were created. The Christian hope is that we might again fulfill the role of the image bearers of God. There is in each one of us, implanted there by God himself, a desire to do something of significance, to do work that matters, when we're stuck doing seemingly insignificant things, or when we feel that the work we've been given to do is is pointless, it crushes our soul. It leaves us empty. It, It leaves us hollow. It leaves us cold. We long to do important things. The problem is that even the greatest human endeavors fall short of the significance that our hearts crave. It was this realization that that moved the preacher of Ecclesiastes to cry out, Vanity of vanities! All is vanity, a striving after wind. I suspect you have felt that malaise at some point in your life. Some of you may even be stuck in it this morning, crying out with the preacher, Vanity of vanities. You may struggle each morning to find the motivation just to get out of bed. What is that sense of despair? It is that sense of vanity that the gospel addresses. But it doesn't address it in the way that we would expect. It doesn't address it in the the way of the the modern world. The, The modern way is to assure people that it's not as bad as they think. The modern way is is to assure people that they are more significant than they know. 
They just need to see themselves more clearly. They need to see really what they're worth. They need to see their, their value. Such platitudes may lift the spirit for a moment, but they, they offer no long-term help because they are a light cure for a deep wound. And the gospel goes in an entirely different direction. The gospel says to those who long for significance, those who are weighed down by the vanity of their life, the, the gospel says to them, you're actually right. Your life is vanity. You are but dust, and to dust you will return. You have fallen short, and you will always fall short of the glory for which you feel you were created. And worse, there's nothing you can do about it. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. It's not where we expect the gospel to begin. It, it's, like, it's the kind of honesty that, that hurts. It feels like, like anything but, but good news. But, but thankfully, that's not where the gospel stops. For the gospel goes on to say, yes, you have sinned and fallen short of glory. Yes, you are without hope in and of yourselves. But Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the one who gave his life as the ransom for many. He is your hope of glory. Hear that. He is your hope of glory. The gospel offers to us glory. The gospel offers to us the glory for which we were created. The, the gospel offers us a restoration to the life that our hearts know we were intended to live. The life our hearts crave is offered to us in Christ. For Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, In the Lord our labor is not in vain. In the Lord our lives are no longer vanity. In the, the Lord we are no longer chasing the wind. In the Lord we, we have the opportunity, we have the strength, we have the resources to do work that matters, to do work of significance, because we have in Christ everything we need to bring and to build the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. It's what we were created for, and it's what we have been redeemed to do. It is the position we have been restored to through Christ, and that is at least in part the joy of our salvation. And what the author of Hebrews wants us to see is that all of this is ours only in Christ. For He is the one who did what we were supposed to do. He is the one who earned life. And therefore, He is the rightful heir. He is the, the rightful Lord. He is the one who's been seated at the right hand. And if we would be heirs, we can be heirs only with Him. And if we would be rulers, we can rule only in Him. And therefore, if we would have the life for which we were created, we must be in Him by faith. For He is our only hope of glory. Think of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. It didn't take long before they were grumbling and complaining and, and thinking about going back after the Exodus. But what we know is that the life that they were redeemed to have could be theirs only as they went forward with Moses. To forsake Moses and, and to forsake the Lord whom he represented would be to go back 
to slavery. In the same way, the life for which we were created, the life for which we have been redeemed, is ours only as we move forward with Jesus. To forsake Him is to return to slavery. So this is, this is the first thing the author wants us to see this morning. Jesus is the heir. Jesus is the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the one who has fulfilled the role for which we were created. And only in Him may we have the life of glory that God intended for us to have in the beginning For he alone is the one who has made purification for our sins and set us free to serve the kingdom of God. There's a second point here. Not only is is Jesus the Redeemer, but in the second couplet we see that, that he is also the creator and sustainer of the universe. So he is our our Redeemer, and he is also. God. That's that's the point of of these phrases. That's the the point of these descriptions. There there is simply no other way to to read these two phrases. Creation is God's work par excellence. Think of of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or or think of, of Psalm 95. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Creation is the work of God. And likewise, upholding and sustaining the universe is distinctly the work of God. Again, think of Isaiah chapter 40. It it is the Lord God who brings out the starry host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might and because of His strong power. Not one of them is missing. Or think of Psalm 104. Your, Your creatures all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with, with good things. But when you hide your face, they are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. It is the Lord God who not only created the universe, but also sustains it by the word of his power. And thus, for the author of Hebrews to to point to Jesus and to refer to him as the creator and sustainer of the universe is, is, is to call him God as clearly as he possibly could. Jesus is As John tells us, the Word who was with God and who was God in the beginning. The One who made all things and without whom not anything was made that was made. Think of Colossians chapter 1, the passage we, we looked at during the Advent season. Paul tells us, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. The meaning of of these passages could not be more clear. To say that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe is to say that Jesus is God. And I don't want us to miss how extraordinary that is. It is is mind-boggling that in the first century... The author of Hebrews, together with Paul and with with John and really with all of the first Christians, that they would worship the man Jesus Christ, the man from Nazareth, 
The man who had, who had grown up as the, the carpenter in that small town. The, the man whom they had walked with during his public ministry. The man who had been betrayed by one of his own and crucified by the Romans. That flesh and blood man they regarded as the creator and sustainer of the universe. You would find it preposterous if, if someone came saying that, that John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King Jr. was God incarnate. You would, you would dismiss it out of hand. Because it would be preposterous. It would be impossible to believe. And yet that is the magnitude of the claim that is being made here. We are, we are so familiar with it that we sometimes don't stand amazed. That God had revealed himself in Christ in such a way that people's eyes were open to see that in this man was the fullness of God. That he was the one who had called the universe into existence out of nothing by the word of his power. But it's not just an astounding claim. It is also a vital claim. Think for a moment why it is so important that the one who made purification for sins is God. Think for a moment why, why it is so important that the, that the one who made it possible for us to be restored to the life for which we were created is none other than the creator God himself. It matters because it means that all those who put their trust in him will never be put to shame. The psalmist warns, put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in Him in whom there is no salvation. When His breath departs, He returns to the earth. On that very day, His plans perish. If Jesus were just a man, He could not save. If Jesus were, were just a man, he, he could offer great things and he could inspire great allegiance. But he could not save. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth and in that very day his plans perish. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, but blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. A mere man cannot be trusted. A mere man cannot save, but the Creator God, He can save to the uttermost, and He can be trusted entirely. It is this truth that, that Paul is echoing in Romans chapter 10 when he writes, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in Him, calling upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. And so Jesus is our Redeemer, the, the one in whom and, and by whom we have been set free from our sins and restored to the life for which we were created. And we can trust Him absolutely. We can trust him without fear or doubt or reservation, even when he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Because he is the maker of heaven and earth. His plans shall never perish. He is the God 
who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And therefore we can rest secure knowing that the good he intends for us cannot be thwarted. This brings us to the third and final couplet. We've seen that Jesus is our Redeemer. The one who who restores us to that, that position of heir and ruler for which we were created. And we've seen that that. As our Redeemer, He is none other than God Himself, and so we can entrust ourselves to Him without fear. But there is one more truth revealed here. In the third and final couple, we learn that that Jesus restores us not only to the role of an image bearer, but He also restores us to the relationship for which we were created. Notice what the author says. He says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. As I mentioned earlier, it didn't take long for the people of Exodus to, or for the people after the Exodus to, to begin complaining. Their, their, their trek through the wilderness towards the promised land didn't seem much like the salvation that they had dreamed of all those years. And they were clicked quick to let Moses and and God know it. And after that rebellion reached its climax with bowing down to to a golden calf, God made an offer. God offered the people that they could go and have the land, but without him. They could have the inheritance. They could have the role. They could be heirs and rulers but without him. By God's grace, the people knew that to have the role without the relationship was a disastrous word. It was a disastrous word. Think think about it for a moment. In in a marriage, there are both side-by-side elements and there are face-to-face elements. A, A good marriage needs both. But when the face-to-face elements are lost, when the the married couple is reduced merely to working side by side, the marriage is no longer what it was intended to be. It is a disastrous thing. How much more our relationship with God, how, how, how poor a thing it would be simply to do the work He had given us to do without being in relationship with the one for whom the work is done. This is why it is so important for us to see that that in Jesus, in relationship with Him, we know God. To see Him is to see God, for He is the radiance of His glory and the exact imprint of His nature. The radiance suggests that, that, that he is the manifestation of God's glory. Think of that glory that we see throughout the Old Testament. The, the glory that was manifest in the, the cloud, of, the pillar of cloud and fire that, that led them. The, the, the glory that, was, that, that blanketed Mount Sinai when the law was given. The, the glory that filled the tabernacle and, and later the temple. The Shekinah glory of God by which the people knew that God was present among them. Jesus not merely reflects that glory, He is that glory. He is the glory of God's presence. He is Emmanuel, God with us. 
The same thing is, is communicated by that second phrase. He is the exact imprint of his nature. It's what we saw in, in Colossians 1. Yes, we are created in the image of God, but he is the image of God. So this means that Jesus restores us not only to our role, but to the relationship for which we were created. In him we know God. And this is why there is no relationship with God apart from Christ. Yes, he is the only one who can make purification for our sins. That is, that is true. But it is also true that he is the one with whom the relationship is to be had. He is the one by whom we know the Father. He is, he is the glory of God manifest. He is the invisible God made visible. And so we must set our eyes upon Jesus, for it is in Jesus that we know God. It is in Jesus that we know the Father. It is in Jesus that we are restored to that relationship for which we were created. And so what is it that we see? We see that He is our Redeemer. He is, he is the second Adam who, who fulfills the role that we were created so that in Him we might be restored to that role. He is the image and glory of God so that in Him we might be restored to relationship. And He is the creator and sustainer of the universe so that we can know that His purposes of salvation cannot be thwarted. And therefore He is in sum the gospel. He is our hope of glory. And therefore, even as Peter says, let us then set our minds and our hearts on the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus and the grace that will be fully ours when he comes again to bring to completion the good work that he has begun. For it is only as our eyes are set on him that we will be able to run with endurance the race that he has marked out for us. For he is our God, he is our Lord, and he is our Savior. He is the gospel. Therefore, let us believe in him together. Pray with me. Father God, give us eyes to see Jesus. Give us ears to hear his voice. Give us mouths to, to taste His goodness. And give us hearts to love Him. That we might cling to Him as our sovereign Lord and Savior, both now and forevermore. This we pray in Jesus' name. And for His name's sake. Amen.